I'm Lane. And I'm Sharis. We are two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. From empathy to racism, sickness, time, and much more, we're here to talk about why our brains do the things they do and how to use our minds to become happier and healthier people through the power of knowing more. While it's easy to get lost in the science, we'll do our best to make these topics easy to digest so that you can better understand your brain and no longer be controlled by its functions. The more we understand about our brain, the more control we get over how we think and feel, and thus, the more we empower ourselves to live the lives we want and positively impact others. This is the Brain Blown Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of season one of the Brain Blown Podcast. This season has been an absolute pleasure bringing to you all. We have duly named it the neuroscience of human connection, because throughout all of these episodes, not coincidentally, they have all been branching and connecting from one another. We've started off by seeing our brains like a map so we could better navigate the new terrain that we were exploring together. We discovered that empathy and human connection is our key to survival. We recognized our need to feel safe in order to build on those connections. And we also highlighted our innate racism and how we can learn to connect more as a group, especially with those who seem different to ourselves. We learned that the key to maintaining healthy connections with others starts with turning inward and connecting with the present moment through mindfulness. And we also found that things we enjoy, like music, greatly affect our brains and how they develop in order to create more connections. From every lesson so far, we've learned the first step toward making any type of change in our brains, in our actions, in our connections, is to first be aware of what it is you want to change. And for our society, specifically in America, it's time to bring awareness to what divides us most so that we might learn why we innately lean towards certain political directions, what in our brains makes it so hard to connect with opposing sides, and how we might learn to reconnect and strengthen our society and the world we live in. I love that. I think that's really at the heart of why we wanted to do this topic. And it's tricky to do topics that are innately divided because we are trying very hard here to present facts and not opinions. That's actually a core piece of this is here's the science, right? And the complication with politics is very interesting on a human level because we really started this season with who and how we came to be as a species. Why, why, do, why do our brains do what they do has to go back down to the evolution of why are our brains unique in respect to other mammals? which goes to we wanted bigger brains, which means that we wanted to also stand upright so we could use our hands for more complex tasks, which therefore those combinations, of course, meaning that like we had a smaller intestine system and we had to eat all the time (laughs) because our (laughs) brains are exhausting for 
calories specifically. And that meant that we got weaker and slower than other mammals, which meant that we needed to live in groups, right? And so a lot of this has season has really focused on that evolutionary piece, sort of on accident. Literally, we kind of chose these topics at random only to find out that they kept coming back to some of these same themes. But it really, when talking about the fact that we needed to live in groups, we then immediately look at what happens when there are more than one group. Mm-hmm. Because in-group is one thing. It is your tribe. It is the people who you are leaning on to survive. But immediately, of course, we have other groups, other tribes. And those tribes we can easily look at as trying to steal our resources, trying to attack us, trying to put ourselves or our loved ones at risk. And then our population exploded. So now when we think about different tribes, what we're talking about is different ways of governing people. But we still have a tendency to be rooted into the, are you stealing the resources that I have? Are you keeping me safe? And so it's important for us, I think, to look at how our human evolution created the brains in which impact our choices in the society that we live in right now in terms of trying to exist in this group and really struggling with it. And so this was an incredibly important topic, even though it's very difficult. That being said, this is the neuroscience of politics. Before we dive into this, we wanted to share with you a bit of a disclaimer in that the way we'll be approaching this topic is strictly from research. We will do our very best, just like we did in the neuroscience of racism, to not present as many opinions and stick more to the facts that have been presented to us in research and using that to simply open our eyes to what exists and what our brains are doing when it comes to politics. Yes. So again, in this episode or in any episode that we're ever going to cover that is more political in nature, if you will, one of the things you'll notice me doing is less interpretation and a lot more citation. And for the record, on all topics, I am taking whatever research is available. I will take whatever side is available and simply try to present all of the data in summary. I'm sure by nature, some of it skews because it's almost impossible for it not to, but we are going to do our very best to walk a very non-opinionated choice, give you the data, give you the science, and let you make up your own choices. Love it. So let's dig into what is politics. Yes. Let's talk about some basic definitions. Merriam-Webster would say this is just the art or science of government. Google says this is the activities associated with governance of a country or other area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. I want your resources. Mm. Aristotle is credited with actually having first used the word when he wrote about politica or affairs of the cities. And Sapolsky stated to quote, Franz de Waal introduced the term politics into primatology with his classic book, Chimpanese Politics, using it in the sense of Machiavellian intelligence, non-human primates struggling in a socially complex manner to control access to resources. The book documents chimpanzees' genius for such maneuvering. This is politics in traditional human sense as well. But I, Sapolsky, will use a more restricted, starry-eyed sense, where politics being the struggle among the powerful with differing views for the common good. Forget liberals accusing conservatives of waging war on the poor. Ditto conservatives accusing those depraved liberals of destroying family values. 
Cutting through this posturing will assume that everyone equally desires that people do as well as possible, but differs as to how best to accomplish this. Very intriguing. So instead of what you might have imagined reading the title of this episode, that we would be strictly talking about American politics, liberal versus conservative, all those kind of issues, and trying to look at them through a neuroscience lens, this is more going to be along the lines of how you said it at the beginning of like the governance of people and yeah. almost how we came about to create these groups that we're in and how they have led to political groupings and ultimately how our society is running with these groups. Yes. I will say again, another disclaimer, this episode might have a few of those, that because I am an American and I'm researching in America and my Google searches are within America, that the majority of the material that we're covering leans more towards American politics. That being said, we did in this episode did include some topics on specifically international relations. And you'll see some studies that do stretch outside of just America. That being said, the predominant amount is still America. Sure. So politics is, because of a lot of this discourse, the reason why I wanted to explain some of this is I wanted to make it clear that politics is one of the last areas to connect to neuroscience. Because politics in of itself is very complicated. That leads us to another disclaimer. There are not a lot of studies on this because it's a newer area. And because of that, there's also newer studies. So we're not seeing as many of these studies per se over time. Generally speaking, when we are looking at something, we're seeing something that we studied and then we restudy and then we restudy again. We have less of that here. And it's complex, specifically because I want to give a disclaimer as to like who is potentially in these studies. All studies have actually some bias to them that we often don't talk about when it comes to those of us in research, but it is just true. Mm -hmm. This is going to be even trickier for politics. Because politics is not black or white. We don't just have, for example, conservative and liberal. We're going to have conservative and liberals, but we're also going to have things like libertarians who are conservative on economics, but liberal on social issues. Mm -hmm. Or Sapolsky cites historically African-American Baptist churches who have a tendency to be very liberal on economics, but conservative on social issues. So in and of itself, politics becomes a little bit more complicated on where you might be conservative and where you might be liberal. Mm -hmm. In addition, dusting off some of my political science undergraduate background, one of the things that we know historically happened was a major change to the conservative party specifically in America. And this happened around the 1960s, 1970s, because the conservative party was losing. Conservative in economics, generally speaking, benefits the wealthy. There are far less wealthy than there are non-wealthy. And so Republicans did a giant think tank to try to figure out how not to lose. And what they did was they married with those conservatives on those social issues, right? Mm -hmm. They connected with those who they would not normally have and found a bridge between how I can convince you because you're very concerned on social issues, you're going to vote against taxes that would otherwise benefit you. That is something I need to bring up simply because we also have to think of who's often in a research study. It's not commonly going to be a wealthy conservative person. 
to be very transparent and honest. Mm -hmm. Research studies are more often to include people on both sides, both liberal and conservatives, of those not having wealth, right? Sure, more middle class. Yes, but there's less of a dichotomy on the liberal side for not having wealth than there is on the conservative side for not having wealth because of that marriage that happened in the 1970s. No, for those as well as many other reasons, politics on the brain is hard. It's hard because so many things impact our decisions and those choices. We are not static. And much like our brains, they're plastic and malleable. So what's impacting the plastic? When we're thinking about politics and the brain and what is politics in the brain, what we're looking at is quite a lot of things that can impact us, that can make us more malleable. And those include, but are not limited to, anger, anxiety, empathy, memory, hunger, intelligence, disgust, pain, and the sense of smell. So let's dig into some of those. We are diving into another whole brain episode. (laughs) Excellent. So emotion in politics. Throughout our history, right, many political leaders have been assassinated. So it's likely no surprise that emotion impacts politics. Gazanaga's studies show the impact of what emotions do to action, demonstrating repeated instances where post doing a behavior, people will then create a narrative of what they did. Even when we can absolutely prove that this behavior was, quote, driven by factors outside their conscious awareness. So if you remember from the neuroscience of safety, we do a thing and then we make sense of the thing. So how does that play into this? Often when emotions are involved, we don't necessarily remember or understand quite why we do the thing. They're not logical. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if politics are emotional, they're not logical. And we try to treat them oftentimes like they are. Right. And that impacts us. Drew Weston, a clinician and a political psychologist, states, quote, The political brain is an emotional brain. It's not a dispassionate, calculating machine objectively searching for the right facts, figures, or policies to make a reasoned decision. He goes on to state, quote, Republicans understand what the philosopher David Hume recognized three centuries ago, that reason is slave to emotion, not the other way around. And he argues that Democrats have historically, quote, clung tenaciously to the dispassionate view of the mind and to campaign strategies that logically follow from it, namely one that focuses on facts, figures, policy statements, cost and benefits, and appeals to intellect and expertise. Which may be why, historically, even though there are more poor people, and thus more people who will benefit from politics that focus more on the liberal side financially, liberals have struggled in politics because what they're not figuring in is that emotion is a huge driving factor of why people get involved in politics and are engaging in politics. So they're missing out on a key sense. Absolutely. Two immediate emotions that come to mind are empathy and fear. Absolutely. So if you need any rundown on those, feel free to check out episodes two, three, and four, where we (laughs) dive into those emotions very specifically, but those are already hugely obvious in this sort of dichotomy of political divides. Absolutely. And we'll dig into more of them a little bit here. George Marcus and Michael McEwen have stated a theory of affect intelligence, specifically looking at the effect of anxiety and enthusiasm and how this impacts politics simply their research shows that anxiety will cause an interest in political manners but will stop people from making decisions enthusiasm impacts active interest and anxiety stops that seems simple enough right huddy feldman and cass is also looking at this in depth they're looking at approach and avoidance and they're specifically studying americans and it's been shown that those who feel anxiety have demonstrated greater interest and want to learn more about the position of a candidate 
However, one of the things we've touched on a little bit here is anxiety impacts our ability to learn and to remember. So it might be driving our need to learn, but it will be also impacting our ability to remember what we've learned. Mm. Remember when your amygdala is highly firing, causing a high level of anxiety, we lose access to our prefrontal cortex, which helps ingrain logic, but we can also lose access to our hippocampus. We start processing memories the wrong way. So this makes that whole experience tricky. We want to learn, and yet we won't necessarily take in information. Anger is also impacting us in politics. No big surprise there. And anger impacts us when a negative event seems clear and very likely to happen, and us doing something will have an impact, according to this study. Mm-hmm. Anxiety is more, right, feeling a lack of control over the ability to have any impact. Right. So anger produces action. Anxiety leads to avoidance. When we're activating that amygdala, right, fight, flight, or freeze. That's what that is. Mm -hmm. We've also learned that anxiety is not a great place to learn, but anger is not a good place to respond. That is just the human lesson. Yes. That you forget politics. (laughs) Don't respond in anger. (laughs) Mackie and colleagues are also looking at an article where the more angry we are, the less we care about those outgroup members. So this brings us back to what we covered a few episodes ago in us versus thems Mm -hmm. which is no surprise a heavy drive in politics clearly clearly so let's dig in a little bit to that okay so neuroscience of humans right is the neuroscience of being in groups we exist to be in relationship with others by being in relationship with others we start to very quickly define ourselves as a group which means it's very easy to define those who are not in that group thus creating an us versus them approach Mm -hmm. and as humans if you remember we see this from everything to the political beliefs that we have, from the race that we identify as, from the sports teams that we like, the list goes on and on. We redefine this in-group versus out-group all the time. Yeah. Eberhardt did a study on neuroimaging showing, no surprise, our brain responds very differently to those we think of as us than those we think of as thems. So let's dig a little deeper into that. Of course, it's the people that you connect with and the people that are threats. Yes, and if you remember from empathy or racism, we feel more pain when we feel connected to you and we feel less pain even when you get hurt than we do if you're an outgroup, right? Mm-hmm. Sharif in 1961 did an experiment on 22 boys in the fifth grade while they were at summer camp. They split them into two groups, but they didn't tell them that another group existed. Each group did activities to create this in-group cohesion, that us, right? And they worked well together, but the minute they introduced the other group, friction arose. A lot of discord, a lot of problems, right? However, at the end of the study, one of the things that they did was to create a, a major project that benefited both groups, And then they reframed who was us and who was them, and that friction diminished. So Molenberg in 2012, it kind of expanded on Schrift's study of in-group versus out-group thoughts. In the study, participants were assigned to be a red team or a blue team. Here again, to create that group cohesion, that us versus thems, they did tasks to start relying on, yes, this is my group, this is my people. And one of those tasks, the participants were told to press a button faster than the opposing team member. A follow-up experiment with these same participants had them watching a video and judge who pressed the button fastest. 
Generally speaking, participants on average judged their in-group members on being able to press this button faster. What they didn't know was that the video had been altered so each person on the video was pressing the button at exactly the same speed. Mullenbergs also did an additional experiment and measured participants' brain responses when they watched video clips. Participants in this study had demonstrated an in-group bias, but also showed an increase in inferior parietal lobe. This area has been shown to be critical in perception-action coupling, what I perceive versus what I do and how I decide how those two connect. This increase happened when watching in-group members versus out-group members. What this confirms was that people were actually seeing the actions of in-group members different than those of out-groups. It wasn't just for the original study to say, oh, I want my team to win, so I'm, I, I'm pretty sure we press that button faster, I promise. No, they actually saw it differently. So what does this look like in politics? Right, because we've already covered so much. Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah, oh my gosh. So before we dive into that, let's just do a quick little recap. So this is the neuroscience of politics, but it's really more so the neuroscience of almost us versus them's understanding groups, understanding how those groups influence our society, how it works, how we connect. Because we have the to get at the heart of like, what is politics in the first place? Yes, and the grand scheme of things. Exactly. And politics goes back to how do we share and divide resources? How do we exist in community with one another? How do we exist in a society with one another? Which it's very hard to explore without looking at what impacts that. Absolutely. So the first thing we looked at and how it impacts or what impacts that is emotions in general. Mm -hmm. You had an incredible list of the different emotions that obviously appear in politics. That was very easy, very clearly defined. And then we also touched on how the emotions of politics almost lead us into this sense of us versus them. Mm -hmm. And then how those emotions play in those groups of mm -hmm. how you create these sort of emotions of connection and of togetherness in the us's and you create disconnect, disconnect and distrust for the for the thems absolutely and now we're diving almost into how these emotions affect our voting choices absolutely so what does this look like in politics, which in and of a sense is voting behavior? Drew Weston, in a study in 2004 of 15 committed Democrats and 15 committed Republicans taken in the last month of the presidential campaign, the subjects that were studied were shown slides of their favorite candidate contradicting the other candidate. The individuals in the study could find and identify those contradictions made by the rival party. They could also find them if a neutral figure did it but they were unable to recognize when their own candidate was either lying or misrepresenting the facts. End podcast. <laughs> That's mic drop. That is both shocking and not shocking. And goes right in line with blue team versus red team. I swear they push the button faster. Yep. Now we see why. Mendez, to quote, in a novel study of language use amongst partisan Twitter followers, those following Republicans presumed the more political conservative use more words emphasizing group membership, in-group identity, national identity, religion, first-person plural pronouns, tentative words and references to achievement, government, law, and opponents. Those following Democrats presumed the more liberal use more emotion words, feeling-related, anxiety-related, positive emotions, expletives, and the first-person singular pronouns, as well as references to uniqueness, culture, and entertainment. 
the most differentiating word, however, is the greater use of the article the, specifically in this study amongst conservatives, possibly suggesting a greater emphasis on the outgroup, the Methodists, the African Americans. Truly alienating with language. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And pulling us apart from empathy. And empathy is important in politics. Schreiber specifically exploring this, uh, specifically theory of mind. And if you remember from episode two, theory of mind is about the mental state of ourselves and others. And when we assume another's mental state based on what we observe, we're impacting the medial prefrontal cortex of the brain. And so the question is, can we hold that and can we keep that? And we know theory of mind is not always the easiest thing to do and takes practice. And the minute we outgroup somebody, we are less likely to try to hold their theory of mind well. Mm-hmm. Also impacting this, as I mentioned, is memory. So if you recall from last month's episode, we're talking about different types of memory. In this particular case, specifically episodic memory, semantic memory. And we're going to go back to Jourdain in his quote from the Neuroscience of Music. Semantic memory is concerned with the inherent nature of a phenomenon, episodic memory with the actual instances of its occurrence. To quote, knowing that frogs are slimy is an example of somatic memory. Remembering the time that someone put a frog in your bed is an example of episodic memory. Similarly, memories of the many ways in which drums are used in rock music is somatic. The memory of how exactly a drum was used in a particular song with the Rolling Stones is episodic. Mm-hmm. So what does it have to do with politics? Lieberman states political issues are often relevant to us precisely, quote, because of the personal experiences we've had, for example, discrimination, that are encoded in episodic memories. Similarly, the facts that we learn about any issues are likely to be stored as somatic memories. Thus, the extent to which the lateral versus the medial temporal cortex is active during political issues assessments may reveal the extent in which individuals retrieve personal information or learn facts. Moreover, these activities can be measured without ever asking a participant to list their thoughts relevant to an attitude. So Holy what does that smokes. mean? Yeah, so in English. <laughs> <laughs> no, I should say in, in simpler terms. So what this quote is specifically saying is we feel a connection to a political stance largely because of our life experiences, but where we try to lean towards the facts and we want to lean towards the facts, what does this candidate have that's going to potentially benefit me on these particular issues? How are they aligned with me? Is one type of memory where we might be pulled towards another type of memory and thus changing us becomes even more complicated. That's really interesting. Would that play at all into semantic memory, like being, as we imagine, more factual memories, but episodic memories would be more impactful to yourself and when you experienced it or the time at which it happened and how you came into that timeline? Absolutely. 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 Let's let's dig into this a little further so we can cover that. Yeah. McLennan states to quote, the cortex is structured to slowly learn regularities, where the structure of the hippocampus makes it an ideal candidate for storing episodic records of experiences. They built a computational model based on the neural architecture of these brain regions and shown together that these systems can underlie many of the commonly studied learning and memory phenomenon. This is important because it explains a bit about why it can be so difficult to change ingrained patterns of thinking, regardless of that incident where we learned that our long-held beliefs weren't actually true. This 
I'm seeing our parts of the brain too and how this literally makes an impact Mm -hmm. because the cortex is the like front of your brain. Mm -hmm. So we're talking like youngest child, prefrontal cortex, memories come last, last to be developed. Yes. But the episodic memories sit in the hippocampus, which is our older brain and therefore more likely to react first, more likely to be signaled on first for our brain and that would be why the episodic memories have more of this effect that's potentially possible that was a uh sheriff's observation (laughs) (laughs) could be true could be not take with that what you will so this is also important when we connect it to in-group versus out-group thinking as well oh yeah because we're talking about a difficult in changing our long-held beliefs, which impacts who we think of as in-group versus out-group. Yes. And remembering that these changes happen slowly and require repeated experiences. This is what we covered in the neuroscience of racism. Can we change this? Yes. Is it easy? Absolutely not. So McLennan states, quote, Even though one might be able to remember a specific episode in which members of a stereotypic groups did not act stereotypically, the cortical representations underlying these stereotypes cannot be easily modified. A substantial change of these representations would require more counter-stereotype experiences. So again, remember, I think even from episode one, one rose that stung us really badly, it's going to take a lot more roses for us to feel better about roses in general, even though roses in and are of themselves completely neutral. Mm-hmm. So yes, this immediately can so easily connect back to our amygdala. Different types of memories are stored in different places. Specifically short-term memories we know are stored kind of all over the brain. Right. Long-term memories are stored more in a hippocampus. And the difficulty is when activation occurs in our body from that memory to the amygdala, then we're losing the ability to process things logically. Mm-hmm. That then brings us to things that cause us pain or discomfort. So Sapolsky says, to quote, people sit in a room with smelly garbage, they become more conservative about social issues without changing their opinion on, say, foreign policy or economics. And quote, this helps explain why conservatives are more likely than liberals to have cleaning supplies in their bedroom. What an interesting fact. <laughs> yes. Wow. Okay. So starting just with smelly garbage makes us more conservative because anytime we experience more pain or discomfort, we find it changes a little bit. That malleability is coming into play. Sure. Sapolsky also cites Theodore Adorn, who did a study as early as in the 1950s, little inflammatory, stating that lower intelligence predicts conservative ideology. Sapolsky states that some, but not all, studies have supported this conclusion. However, what he cites as being more proven has been a connection between lower intelligence and right-wing authoritarianism. Not all conservatives, but specifically lower intelligence, has a gear more towards right-wing authoritarianism. Yes, that's inflammatory, but let's look at why that could exist. Okay. So in a study of 15,000 subjects in the UK and the United States, they were able to show correlation and causation between low IQ, right-wing authoritarianism, and in-group prejudice. It's argued that this happens because right-wing authoritarianism provides simple answers for which individuals with poor abstract reasoning is needed. So I will say intelligence is very complicated. 
how we measure intelligence can honestly also historically been very complicated. So what we are really specifically talking about is not intelligence per se, but a version of intelligence, which is the ability to do abstract reasoning. Right. Abstract reasoning is a very specific type of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And what they're saying is those individuals who don't have this are going to have an easier time with conservatism because it has a tendency to be a little more black or white. Definitely. More simple terms, easier to follow along, easier to understand their role in it, easier to understand in what they're voting for. Absolutely. And Conservatives have done this well. In 2004, most people can't remember what the liberal side of this was, but every remembers that John Kerry was a flip-flopper. Because the conservatives did a very good, simple argument that they repeated over and over again. Mm -hmm. So for those individuals who have lower abstract reasoning skills, they're going to more align with that. Peter Tetlock at the University of Pennsylvania argues that this is impacted by the ability to do interactive complexity. And now we're seeing something at the heart of what's really going on. A lack of interactive complexity will cause the body to become anxious or uncomfortable with ambiguity. So those who can engage in interactive complexity are more likely to be able to approach ambiguity with an open mind, looking for alternative options, seeing a different picture. Mm -hmm. An example of this is found in a study where conservatives and liberals were both asked about poverty. Both liberals and conservatives would state that people are poor because they're lazy. However, this is actually only true if they had to respond very quickly. If participants were given a longer amount of time, those who could engage in interactive complexity would look at a variety of options, such as how it's difficult to find a good-paying job if you can't afford nice clothes, or good schooling, or daycare, or reliable transportation, or a variety of other factors. But the ability to do that is by itself more abstract. Mm -hmm. Yep, leads to more abstract thinking. Absolutely. So Saplowski will say, quote, conservatism starts gut and stays gut. Liberals go from gut to head and states that this is pretty reliable and states the reason for this is that, quote, liberals and conservatives are equally capable of thinking past gut attributions to subtler situations when asked to do so. Both are equally adept at dispassionately presenting the viewpoints of the opposite camp. It's that liberals are more motivated to push past situational explanations. Their values lie differently where conservatives don't have the same disconnect. So Linda Shinsky of the University of Illinois went deeper into this and argues that a snap judgment is going to cause a liberal person to be more likely to experience discomfort or dissonance because it's at odds with their values, their beliefs, their principles. And so they're more likely to want engage in interactive complexity to understand why that snap judgment didn't feel right. Why something is saying... Yeah, but that's not fully the case. Mm -hmm. Conservatives are honestly just less likely to experience the dissonance. Wow. Because the values are also shifting. And interactive complexity, honestly, is also very taxing on the brain. If the brain's cognitive load is increased, this becomes more complicated and less likely to happen. So we see this in studies that show people become more conservative when they're tired when they're in pain, when they're distracted with another task, when their blood alcohol levels rise, or if they're in a room with something that smells bad. Because interactive complexity takes a lot. And it takes a lot on the brain, which we already know requires a ton of energy. It requires about 25% of our daily energy. Mm -hmm. That specific area which is engaging in interactive complexity is a part of your very frontal cortex. And it actually needs a higher amount of glucose 
to work at all. One of the ways that we see this is there are things that we might value or want to do and then we're going to struggle to not do it in the moment. And it feels frustrating to us and we look back and we're like, why couldn't I just do that? And it's because your brain wasn't resourced enough to actually use that part of your brain. So an example of this is, say, I want to start eating healthier, but I'm not eating right because I don't know how to eat healthy but still get the right amount of energy, right? Right. And if somebody leaves out candy, I'm just going to grab that candy, even though I have a goal of trying to eat healthier. Some people will say that you have no impulse control. The other part of it actually is that you have no ability to use this specific part of your prefrontal cortex that requires a ton of energy. So the minute you're low on sleep, the minute you're low on food, it's not happening. Wow, that is an explanation for so many things. Absolutely. Like habits only being one of them. How you want to do something But there's literally something stopping you. And that thing is that you do not have access to the part of your brain that will make you change. Yes. You cannot change without being well-resourced because you can't use that very front part of your cortex, which also engages in interactive complexity. If you're wondering, the people who can do this, the way it can become a habit, right, is we have to do it over and over and over and over and over again so that the decision to do the thing we're trying to do is no longer using that part of our brain right if we do it often enough it will actually move to a different part of our brain that doesn't require that much energy to be accessed absolutely this is literally defining how you create a habit yes this is how you turn something that seems difficult that is inconsistent in your life how you make it consistent and how that actually becomes something that sticks yes but in general if you're feeling very frustrated with like i have a goal or a vision and i want to do this thing and i'm just not doing this it is likely because you are trying to do this being under resourced gotcha so you need to be well resourced to do this because this is incredibly taxing on your brain and i apologize this may have been a side tangent that i took us on at the beginning but bringing us back to this part of our brain Mm -hmm. where did does that fall into political stances so one of the things that we see that occur is we've got studies that show that when people are hungry they score more selfishly on economic games or there's also a study of to quote more than 1100 judicial rulings on prisoners who were granted parole at about 60 percent if it occurred right before the judge had recently eaten and at about zero percent if it occurred right before the judge ate. How generous, how empathetic, how much we can handle that level of interactive complexity is very, very impacted by how resourced our body is. Wow. Because it literally requires fuel. It's like trying to drive your car but not put any gas in it. Right. It's not going to go anywhere. Wow. That's the coolest. So not only does literally food and sleep impact our morality, but there is also a complication of how we define morality in the first place. Jonathan Haidt at NYU will argue six foundations of morality. Cause versus harm, fairness versus cheating, liberty versus oppression, loyalty versus betrayal, authoritarian versus subversion, and sanctuary versus degradation. And the data shows that liberals specifically value care and fairness. Conservatives will value loyalty, authoritarianism, and both groups will value liberty. This boils down into even how we try to answer basic questions. So to quote, can we be critical of the government? If you're conservative, it's seen as disloyal. 
Leftists will argue it can be justified, especially if the government is causing harm. Can you break the law? Let's say illegal immigration. Conservatives will argue no because of the value of authority. But leftists might argue for it if reporting on somebody who's here illegally, they face death at home. But again, to question those things creates ambiguity, creates vagueness, creates an unknown, is interactive complexity. So Mendez will cite, those who are very conservative emphasize loyalty to the in-group, submission to the authority, and a sense of purity, whereas those who are very liberal emphasize minimizing harms to others and maximizing fairness. Conservatives and liberals have a different idea on just the core of what is morale. So when we're talking about politics being about how we govern and how we focus on a group, how do we make everything on the same basis, right? We're literally talking about a dichotomy of what the values actually come into play because of the ability or lack thereof of wanting to do interactive complexity. Memory and negative bias, again, we're seeing how this pulls into interactive complexity. Conservatives have been shown to remember more negatives than positive information. Any wonder everyone seems to be running a smear campaign? Mm -hmm. Negativity bias also even impacts viewing neutral faces. The response to something that feels threatening, negativity bias will gear us towards more violence. And a goal, again, is to move us to something that feels more safe. So liberals will argue, for example, everyone has equal rights to happiness. Conservatives will, to quote, instead discount fairness in favor of expended authority, generating the classic conservative view that some social inequality is a tolerable place for things running smoothly. Conservatives state that liberals are morally impoverished. Joshua Green of Harvard states that what's really occurring here is that liberals have more, they have a different moral foundation. Green is arguing a more refined moral foundation, likely connected to interactive complexity. The use of interactive complexity expands on what one is told is moral to what one can suss out as moral. But if you're sussing out what is moral, it's then leaving those individuals to define for themselves what is moral, which in and of itself is ambiguity. So conservatives and liberals can agree on a lot of what is moral. However, once ambiguity comes into play, conservatives are more likely to become anxious by this. So conservatives are known to want closure, distrust novelty, find structure and hierarchy. Ambiguity confuses this. Saplowski states, quote, the conservative dislike of ambiguity has been demonstrated in numerous political contexts. Responses to visual illustrations, tastes, entertainment, and is closely related to the differing feelings about novelty, which by definition invokes ambiguity and uncertainty. These differencing views of novelty certainly explain why the liberal view with the correct reforms are our best days are ahead of us in that novel future, whereas the conservative view is the best days are behind us in familiar circumstances that should be returned to make things great again. The past is not as novel, is not as vague, does not feel as undefined as anxious. The future does. So yes, it makes sense that conservative gear more towards past, liberals gear more towards future. I am blown away by all of this information. It sounds like, to sum it up, it all comes down to whether or not you are comfortable with or literally can think with ambiguity. And it's not that I would say that the research is trying to say that conservatives can't think with ambiguity, but there is less of a reason to. Less of a reason to. Yes. And so because 
there is less of a reason to, blooming and pruning exist. You're not using those muscles as much. You are going to have less access to them. Absolutely. And we talked about habits and how they're literally created. So if you're not practicing it, if you're not constantly putting in the effort, it's just not going to be there. And there's no reason to if it doesn't benefit you. Yeah. Saplowski will also argue that a conservative need for predictability and structure gives some insight into exactly what we started at the beginning of this episode with what has confused political philosophers for a long time, which is that for over the last 50 years, Republicans have been able to convince poor white Americans to vote Republican. A vote that honestly benefits the rich and not the poor. And he argues that, quote, the psychological issues of needing structure, familiarity, show that for poor whites, voting Republican constitutes an implicit active system justification and risk aversion. Better to resist change and deal with the devil you know. Mm, yeah. However, as we know, life by na- its very nature is filled with ambiguity. Your future is unknown. The future in general is unknown. And a lot of things are yet to come to pass. The more the unknown makes us anxious, the more it will seem threatening. So studies have shown that conservatives react more quickly to threat than liberals do, perhaps because of a heightened amygdala. Conservatives, quote, are more likely to associate arms with weapons rather than legs, more likely to interpret ambiguous faces as threatening and more easily conditioned to associate negative but not positive stimuli with neutral stimuli. Republicans report three times as many nightmares as Democrats, according to this particular study, particularly ones involving a loss of political power. As the saying goes, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Related to this terror management theory, suggesting that conservativeness is psychologically rooted in a pronounced fear of death. Supporting this is the finding that Priming people to think about their morality makes them more conservative. When you think of that, it sounds like a harder place for conservatives to be in. And yet, there was also a multinational study that said conservatives were happier than liberals. As the economic inequality rises, the happiness gap between the right and the left increases. The more we are stressed out or in pain, the more comfort we find in simplicity, a reduction in ambiguity, a reduction in a need for change quick little recap because there was so much incredible information from that research that you did and I just want to sum up and make sure we're we're clear on why we shared all of it and how it leads us into the next part of this podcast but essentially the first part was looking at the division of politics through a few different lenses first looking at the emotions that are involved in politics in political choosings. So um, as you will, we also looked at defining the us versus thems and where those lines kind of start to be drawn. Mm -hmm. And then we spent an, an excellent chunk of looking into political divides based on memory Maybe more specifically, the need or the use of ambiguous thinking mm-hmm. or how and how that leads into pain and discomfort mm-hmm. and the need to... The need to soothe. Yeah, the need, the need to, to soothe, soothe Thank to feel you. safe. Absolutely. So now we're moving into the brain stuff. Yes. Wow. Looking at to 
how all of these things actually play in Mm -hmm. our brains. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about what's going on in the brain. What we're largely going to focus on are the insula and insular cortex. So the insula sits on top of the amygdala and the hippocampus and is very, very connected to disgust. And we're going to look at your singular cortex, which is a large area that encompasses a lot. If we go back to our hand model of the brain, that is literally basically all of the skin on your fingertips and the inside of your palm. So it's kind of wrapping around that midbrain. And the anterior singular cortex, which is, again, hand model of the brain, the fingers that touch your thumb, so way up front. And that's connected to empathy, impulse control, emotion, and decision making. So let's dig into those. Sapolsky says, to quote, back to the insular cortex and its role in mediating gas theory and olfactory disgust in mammals and meditating moral disgust in humans. You can reliably stroke hatred of them by making them seem viscerally disgusting. When people's insula activates at the thought of them, you can check one thing off your genocide to-do list. What he's saying is specifically what we see is disgust has a huge impact in how we engage or how we don't engage. And our threshold for it will very much impact the choices that we make, even if sometimes we would find those decisions morally repugnant. Sapolsky is specifically citing a lot of research articles that have shown that conservatives have a lower threshold for disgust than liberals do. Again, if I'm right on my hypothesis that some of this is dealing with stress tolerance and how much more liberals might have to do distress tolerance than conservatives do, that would also be coming into play. Mm. If we take a person who identifies as a liberal and make them tired, hungry, rushed, distracted, disgusted, they become more conservative. However, on the flip side, if we're able to have a person who identifies as conservative become more detached about something viscerally disturbing, if we increase that distress tolerance and they are able to more remove themselves from the situation, they'll become more liberal. Sapolsky will state, if it makes you puke, then you rebuke. He also argues that this is very tricky because what we find disgusting now, we didn't before, and specifically states this is a moving target. Slavery wasn't something we found disgusting 100 years ago at least by the general population. So we're also talking about the singular cortex. Sapolsky will say to quote, liberalism has been associated with larger amounts of gray matter in the singular cortex with its involvement in empathy, whereas conservatives have been associated with an enlarged amygdala, with of course its starring role in threat perception. Moreover, there's more amygdala activation in conservatism than liberals when viewing a disgusting image or doing a risky task. Clear example of blooming and pruning. The yes. more you use a certain, a certain part of your brain, it will literally change in shape. Yes. And the, that is true as well for the amygdala. Yeah, the enlarged amygdala. Absolutely. We see the, this specifically in traumatized individuals who have larger amygdala, and it will activate to things that are not necessarily actually threatening. Looking as well at the anterior singular cortex, remember that's engaged in empathy, impulse control, emotion, and decision-making. A recent study using electroencenographs have found that greater liberalism is associated with stronger conflict-related anterior cingulate brain activity and claims to be the first, quote, connecting individual differences in political ideology to basic neurocognitive mechanisms for self-regulation. 
How well can you self-regulate to be able to distance yourself? Is therefore going to impact how liberal you are? How you decide, yeah. Your ability to self-regulate allows you to separate yourself from the threat and maybe understand more things that you wouldn't have seen if you thought the threat was immediate and there was no time to escape it. Absolutely. So Mendez, quote, will say, the unexpected association of political liberalism with activity in the left posterior insula in one study may reflect an additional role of the insula with expressions of interpersonal trust. Finally, political liberals have greater gray matter and an increased ERP activity in the anterior cingular cortex, consistent with a sensitivity for processing signals for potential change. Several areas in the prefrontal cortex are additionally implicated in political ideology. The inferior frontal urus, particularly on the right, may be directly involved in risk aversion. What he's really talking about is we are seeing differences in the brains of those who are more likely to lean more conservative than to lean liberal, and we're seeing it actually in a couple of different areas. Again, this goes back to the very beginning of we can look at politics in the brain because the experiences that you have are therefore going to shape and change your brain. Your brain is going to be more firing in a specific way. Certain areas are going to be larger. There's going to be specific paths between how they fire. And that is what this whole quote is saying. Yeah. And he will go on to say that this isn't completely accurate. There are some flaws to this because... We need to remember that although there is a neurological structure and a bias for this conservative liberalism, it doesn't mean that life doesn't change you. And when it changes you, it changes your brain. I think that's fair to say because almost what we're highlighting is how life is the changing factor. And it's everything that happens to you in your life can lead to how your brain is developed and also how it changes in the future or mm-hmm. how likely it is or is not to be able to change in the future mm-hmm. and how that directly leads you towards one political leaning versus the other. Yes. And a lot of our podcast is about what is going on in your brain and why and if you want to change it, how. So yes, this all exists and remember, I feel like we say this in every single episode, your brain is plastic. Nothing Nothing is set in stone because of that. Mm-hmm. Although changing it isn't necessarily easy. It's no coincidence that we chose to talk about this topic in the month of October, right before elections, election season. But I think there's a lot more to why we're talking about this topic. So what are some of those things? I think the why for me is that we started the series on what binds us together. And on the flip side of that coin, this is about what separates or disconnects us. And we've also been focusing some of this podcast on how it came about, which is trying to provide some insight, some help, some information, some guidance on where we are now post a pandemic. And one of the things that we identified in the very beginning for empathy was we are going to have a decreased amount of empathy post-pandemic. We do better when we're in spaces with each other, when we're engaging with each other. We do not as well when we don't have that. We make sense of ourselves through each other, right? Mm -hmm. And what we are seeing is more political polarization than perhaps maybe ever before. And specifically more than for most of us in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. 
And so we're seeing, and it's being commented on, a pretty significant divide between individuals. We're also talking about it, to quote Krostev, political choice matters. Whether expressed in the voting booth or in response to a pollster, individual choices collectively influence the direction of public policy and ultimately the well-being of society and the individuals that compose it. People's engagement politics impact us as a society. This season ended up being about the neuroscience of human relationships. People's engagement in politics will impact people they've never even met before. It puts us in relationship with one another, even if we will never know each other's names. How do we not talk about it? I think it's been a really great eye-opener for me just to chime in for why we're talking about it on my end. And I apologize if there were ever a time in this podcast where I showed more of an opinion. But I think for me, I've also gotten just such an a look into who I might consider the other and learning a bit more about their brain and how it's working and how they're making decisions. And just knowing is the first part of the battle, isn't it? Yes, which is often what we go to when we say, why are we talking about this? Because awareness matters. And I think it's been very difficult for most people not to have a leaning one direction or the other because of how polarized we've become. And I've been hearing that there are more struggles for individuals who are challenged by the idea of this middle of the road because our middle of the road has become so pulled into two different directions. Mm -hmm. We're having a harder time bridging that. And some individuals I have seen argue that we've become so fundamentally different that they don't even want to bridge it. It's harder to compromise with somebody when you feel like that compromise will affect who you are as a human being and your basic right to be. And so not only are we more divided, but we're struggling with how not to be divided. In addition to that, when it's too difficult to compromise, when the middle ground, the people in the middle get too sparse and that Mm -hmm. area gets too big, it's a lot easier to just stay out of it. Yes. And not participate. Yes. And I think some of it comes back to where we started this podcast, which is our human evolution. We started historically in tribes, right? That's who we were. And so politics was about you are not a part of my tribe and you're going to take my resources. And that led to a lot of brutality. And now what we look like is that our tribe is huge. We are billions of people. And the question is, who are we now and how much of us have actually changed? Or how much of our decisions is still in the, you're from a different tribe and you're going to steal my resources. How much do we want our future to be different? And what do we want that future to look like? This is going to keep impacting us. And so it's important that we talk about it, even if we don't have all of the answers, because it's going to continue to impact us for the rest of our lives, whether we want to avoid it or not which is kind of getting a little into why do we care? And 
Why do we care is going to maybe play a little into what do we do about it? I'm going to quote Holmes here, specifically to quote, the problem is not that individuals are generally self-interested or not generally for maximizing domination. They may very well be, particularly under certain conditions that may be predictable. But the lack of a fixed human nature would suggest that scholars can no longer take such perspectives as assumptions. The claims become empirical ones. It is possible that individual brains come wired for self-interest or power maximizations. But we know now that this may be rewired over time. Why do we care, I guess, is because we all have the ability to connect back together. We are going to need, as a society, to find a way to live together, to find a way to survive, to share resources, because to start off at the very beginning of the season, we are a society that lives in groups. We don't exist function without each other. We don't. We are dependent on one another, regardless of how much we feel comfortable with admitting that or not. And if we are dependent on one another, then it is crucial that we figure out a way to live together. So what do we do about it is how do we live together? I think there's a beautiful irony in the fact that even in planning this episode, the what do we do about it was a bit ambiguous because I think the what do we do about it kind of ties back to how your brain is going to decide you do something. The action that you choose to take was kind of defined in this episode Mm. of is there a threat to escape from right now? Is this an opportunity to think more ambiguously And are you comfortable and or do you see a need to do that? That's true. So what do we do about it is hard for you or I to write because it isn't about what you or I would state. It's about what everybody would state for themselves. What do we do about it is left up to all of us. Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. To learn more, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email or reach out via social media to get started. You can find our information and more at www.brainblownpodcast.com.